Hello, friends and enemies. Welcome to the Old Movie Lady podcast. I'm your host, the titular Old Movie Lady, but you can also call me Marg. This is episode 26 of my series, The Wampus Frolic. Join me as I explore the lives, careers, and public personas of a group of dreamers, of stars to be and stars that weren't, the Wampus Baby Stars. In 1929, the Western Association of Motion Picture Advertisers selected a very young lady, just 16, as one of their latest crop of baby stars. Loretta Young would go on to become one of the greatest success stories of the Baby Stars program. She would also go on to be known as the Steel Butterfly, Saint Loretta, Attila the Nun, even. Was her holier-than-thou, iron-willed reputation justified? And, if so, what brought her there, from humble roots as a teenager with big teeth and big dreams, to the beautiful grand first lady of television. Join me as I try to uncover that story, and along the way, tell you about what was one of the biggest cover-ups in Hollywood history. I read a bunch for this episode, and I'm indebted to the works Behind the Door by Edward J. Funk, This Was Hollywood by Carla Valderrama, Forever Young by Joan Wester Anderson, and Uncommon Knowledge by Judy Lewis. I'd also like to thank Loretta Young's daughter-in-law, Linda Lewis, for her support. And I want to apologize to Loretta in advance, because I believe I'll have a few contributions to her infamous swear box. Can someone just tell me what I owe at the end of the episode? But for now, let's begin. One day, while I was making a film called Her Wild Oat, I saw among the extras the most beautiful little girl I'd ever seen. I suggested we make a test of her. When I saw the test the next day with the studio brass, I was elated. She was even better than her promise. To my shock, the bosses, even John, said, But her teeth stick out in front. And I said, For heaven's sake, she's only 14 years old. Haven't you ever heard about braces? So they signed her to a contract and sent her to a dentist. Convinced now they had another Corinne Griffith on their hands, the bosses wanted to change her name to something more romantic than her own name, Gretchen Young. So I named her, after the most beautiful doll I ever had, Loretta. And that's how Wampus Baby Star of 1922, Colleen Moore, claimed to discover Wampus Baby Star of 1929, Loretta Young. Born as Gretchen Young on January 6, 1913, the one-day Loretta was the third daughter born to a wayward but extremely handsome father, John Earl Young, and his beautiful, steely wife, Gladys. Before her came Polly Ann and Elizabeth Jane, a.k.a. Loretta's fellow Wampus baby in 1929, Sally Blaine. A younger brother, John, rounded out this incarnation of the family. Not long after John's birth, Earl and Gladys's long-troubled marriage disintegrated long enough for Gladys to move with her children to Hollywood, where her sister's family lived. Gladys's brother-in-law worked for Jesse Lasky at Lasky Studios, thus introducing the family to the movie business for the very first time. The young children worked as extras, 
with all of them appearing in 1917's Sirens of the Sea. A number of uncredited background roles followed for little Gretchen and the others over the next couple of years, but none of the young children were ever actually child stars. Their father reappeared and then disappeared from the family's life for the final time, it seems, in 1917. Abandoned once more, Gladys was struggling to support her small children. On the set of The Primrose Path in that year, Gretchen met movie star May Murray and first learned what stardom could bring. May took a shine to the four-year-old, and seeing the trouble that Gladys was having, offered essentially to foster Gretchen. She and her cousin Carlene lived with May for about a year. There she had her own room and a governess, all the best toys and fanciest clothes, ballet lessons, a chauffeur that would drive the little girls home whenever they wanted to see their families. May Murray moved to New York in 1919 and said that she wanted to adopt one or both of the girls, but their mothers quite understandably refused. To Gretchen, this experience set her on her life's path. Later she said, I was six when I knew I was going to be a movie star, not an actress a movie star. She saw what being a star could bring, the opportunity, the luxury, the lifestyle, the glamour. She also saw how people reacted to movie stars, how everyone around seemed to love them and be happy with them. It was intoxicating. Gretchen was home for good, though a similar fostering arrangement led to her younger brother John living permanently with another family. The remaining sisters and their mother were extremely tight-knit. With the help of a local Catholic bishop, Gladys had opened up a boarding house. It was close to both a Catholic school and Lasky Studios, quite literally positioning the family near their two most important institutions, the church and the movie industry. Gladys was a devout Catholic and raised her daughters the same. Sunday school, mass, prayer, Catholic school, guilt. She did get divorced, which is something generally frowned upon in the church, and remarried while her first husband was still living, tut-tut-tut, to a perfectly nice man named George Belzer. Their daughter Georgiana was born in 1924 and would later marry Ricardo Maltabon. As a child, Gretchen was extroverted and eager to make friends, but she struggled in school. Virtually nothing was known about dyslexia in the 1920s by average people, but much later in life Loretta realized that this was where her difficulties reading and writing came from. It's really no wonder, especially as her older sisters attempted to launch their careers, that when Gretchen was in her early teens, fed up at school and with the movie star dream percolating in her mind since she was a tiny girl, that she took the opportunity to jump into the movies at the very first chance. The legend goes that director Mervyn Leroy called up the young Beltzer house looking for her sister Pollyanne, as he wanted to use her in an uncredited role in a film. Polly wasn't home, so Gretchen, who had answered the phone, said, Will I do? It's an oft-repeated origin story with various details up for debate, but 
Obviously, I do wonder what director calls up unknowns personally for extra work and bit parts. Biographer Edward J. Funk clarifies the story in Behind the Door, where he spoke directly to Polly Ann, explaining that Mervyn had given Polly work before in his then role as a casting director. He offered her the chance to come in, but she was going to be out of town, and she suggested her little sister. It's a subtle distinction, but the story that has been repeated makes it seem like Gretchen was somehow being sneaky and stealing a role away from her sister. The film was 1927's Naughty But Nice, not her wild oat, as Colleen Moore remembered in her autobiography, though that came next. Fourteen-year-old Gretchen had to travel alone via the streetcar with multiple transfers to First National Studios. By May 1927, she had a contract with First National via producer and Colleen's husband, John McCormick, and a new name more befitting for the screen, Loretta Young. After a couple of more bit parts, she made her credited debut under her new moniker in a small part in The Whip Woman, then had her biggest role yet in Laugh, Clown, Laugh, released in April 1928, not long after her 15th birthday. She played the adopted daughter of a clown played by Lon Chaney, 30 years her senior, though he raised her from early childhood as her character becomes a teenager, the clown falls in love with her. A love triangle of sort ensues with the 16 years her senior, Niles Asher. Well, at least his character isn't her dad. Filming was a nightmare for Loretta, as director Herbert Brennan was, well, a raging asshole. Oh, he was a genius filmmaker, I guess, but the type that liked to psychologically torture his actors, especially, it seems, his actors who were also teenage girls. On the set of Laugh, Clown, Laugh, any time star Lon Chaney was not present, Herbert would scream at Loretta, mock and ridicule her, make her do dangerous shots without a double, and even threw a chair at her. Loretta, though eager to please, was terrified of Herbert. He was a sadistic bully, and the abuse only stopped when Lon accidentally witnessed it and stepped in. He refused to leave the set from then on whenever Loretta was working effectively protecting her. Laugh, Clown, Laugh was a success, and the critics took notice of the impossibly young new talent. Loretta Young, who I am told is but 15 years old, plays Simonetta with a heartbreaking quality, which could only come from an actress unconscious of her youth, and never from one who tried to achieve adolescence by any expedient of the actor's craft, wrote Pitcher Play. On the other hand, Motion Picture Classic said, The film misses fire because of the emphasis given the feminine interest, and Loretta Young, while appealing and wistful, seems to be too immature for the part. Which, like, yeah, duh. Mixed reviews or no, Loretta was now a real up-and-comer, and the rest of 1928 she was a busy leading lady. When the Wampus had their elections for the Baby Stars of 1929, it was her sister Sally Blaine who got the most votes, but reaction towards Loretta's inclusions were positive, and with good reason, as truly her career was going marvelously. Warner Brothers purchased her home studio, First National, a few months earlier, 
and brought with them the wonders of Vitaphone. That young lady, Loretta, becomes the first ingenue of the speaking screen, announced Screenland in their October 1929 issue. Loretta Young has arrived, and she's only been traveling such a little way. Just think of it. She started out in pictures when she was only fourteen. In Laugh, Clown, Laugh, she made her first appeal, that of a wide-eyed and incredibly innocent child. Now she has grown up a little. Still the very youngest leading lady in Hollywood, she has added considerably to her dramatic stature, until in fast life she proves conclusively that she is the loveliest and liveliest and positively most promising of all the beautiful little ingenues abounding in the California studios. Fast Life was Loretta's first on-screen pairing with Douglas Fairbanks Jr., then 19, who wrote this about her in his autobiography. My leading lady was a mere slip of a girl, hardly more than a child, Sally Blaine and Polly Ann Young's baby sister Gretchen. I recalled how annoying she had been a couple of years ago when I arrived to pick up one of her sisters before a dance. She always pranced around in pigtails, her big teeth in braces, trying to eavesdrop. She was a nuisance. Now she was somewhere between sixteen and eighteen, had grown disturbingly pretty, and was given heroine leads demanding only that she be the object of the hero's devotion. Which pretty accurately sums up the roles she was getting. She was sixteen at this point, by the way. He continued, We hardly spoke on this picture, but we became, against our wills, a popular team with the public. After our next picture, we began to warm up. Purely platonically, let me promptly and sadly insist. We ended up making about six pictures together, three more that very year of 1929. Most of them were pretty successful, few were really good. The best result of our partnership was that we became the fondest of friends. This is an aside, but there's something sweet and kind of funny about Doug's first take on Loretta. He had just married the slightly older Joan Crawford in the summer of 1929, having known her since he was 17, and yet he was paired on screen, quite successfully, with the very young, but not so much younger than he, Loretta. They were both teenagers, and the films they made, especially the first few, were for the youth market. But of course, Doug Jr. was trying to be as grown-up as possible in real life. In reading multiple biographies of Loretta, the picture of her as a teenager becomes very clear. She was a dreamy romantic with a rich fantasy life, as the majority of teen girls have, and she was extremely naive with a strong desire to be liked. She may have looked like a leading lady, but emotionally she was a heck of a lot closer to the little girl in pigtails that Douglas Fairbanks Jr. described, eavesdropping and not wanting to miss out. Loretta had a track record of getting a crush on every co-star she had, from the married Doug to the much older but not above interfering with teens John Barrymore. He never acted inappropriately with her, as far as I know, by the way. And if it wasn't her co-star, it was her director's. I'm going to age myself here, but have you ever seen the Teen Girl Squad cartoons? And one of them says, I have a crush on every boy. That was Loretta. And that's normal. 
What isn't normal or healthy is a grown-ass man taking advantage of an underage girl's crush to manipulate her. In late 1929, Loretta was assigned to the film Second Floor Murder Mystery. Her leading man was 24-year-old Grant Withers. Grant was tall and handsome and a divorced deadbeat dad. He and Loretta began dating each other. Dating for all of the young sisters generally meant going out to dances and other well-chaperoned places and spending a lot of time with the whole family in Mother Gladys's living room along with any of the other friends of the girls. They, the family, generally just considered Grant to be another one of the beaus who, I don't know, was politely playing Parcheesi with the rest of the gang on a Saturday afternoon. He may have seemed a little too old for her, but no one seems to have taken it too seriously. Then Grant proposed to Loretta, and after she said, Oh, I don't think so, he threatened to kill himself. Suddenly, Loretta, who presumably thought she just had a nice casual boyfriend to take her out dancing every now and again, had a man's life in her hands. In January 1930, a couple of weeks after her 17th birthday and his 25th, Loretta agreed to elope with Grant to Yuma, Arizona, because, you know, she didn't want him to die. Since he had been married before, the elopement was done by a justice of the peace. Loretta, who had always been taught that a marriage was not real unless it was done by a priest in a Catholic church, told herself that this was all going to be fine because it wasn't real. None of this was real to her. And I know some of you might be wishing you could go back 94 years and shake her by the shoulders, and, and me too. But imagine being a sheltered 17-year-old girl with an extremely limited knowledge of the real world. The most romance you've ever actually seen has been in the movies you're in, where everything fades out after the kiss. She was groomed by a guy eight years older than her, coerced into an elopement to appease him and her only mental protection was the doctrine of the church, which, frankly, she misunderstood, so she could pretend, essentially, that they were living in one of their movies. When the newlyweds got back from Yuma, Loretta's family demanded that she come home, and she did. At first, Gladys tried everything she could to get the marriage automatically annulled on the grounds that her child was a child, but Arizona's age of consent was 16, so they were SOL. Then they all tried to convince Grant to just agree to an annulment, but after some back and forth, he refused. The love story of Loretta Young and Grant Withers turns out to be one of the stormiest in history. No sooner had the moony young pair flown back from Yuma, Arizona after their recent elopement than Mama Young called Grant on the family carpet spoke her piece, and went after an annulment. Loretta, being seventeen, only, breathlessly reported photoplay, who continued, Withers, worried, went for a drive, smashed his car, and got all bruised up. Slap comes a suit for increased alimony from his first wife. She wanted her alimony increased from sixty dollars to three hundred dollars a week, because the twenty-four-year-old boy had climbed into the big money. 
Incidentally, Grant's first marriage resulted in an annulment, too, because he was too young. Just one annulment after another for young withers. And at last, reports the pair were living together, making the annulment thing quite, quite void. Grant did convince his child bride to come live with him, more, it seems, to project an image of a happy Hollywood couple than anything else, as the fan magazines and studios were trying to make the best of the situation. Loretta later described how things went thusly. He slept in his room and I slept in my room. The honeymoon, of course, we slept in the same bed, but it wasn't anything I wanted to run back to. I knew nothing, absolutely nothing, at seventeen years old, and I frankly was a little surprised, quite surprised, and not too enchanted. It wasn't that he was forceful or anything, he wasn't. I must say that he was very patient, but either I was too dumb or he wasn't very confident. I'm sure I did a lot of play-acting then. She was having a pretty miserable time, as for a while her mother stopped talking to her entirely, and even her priest was mad at her, telling her that she had set a bad example for other young Catholic girls. Whatever charm Grant did hold early on quickly fell to the wayside in favor of his drinking and staying out late at night. Outwardly, though, their story was one of young love's triumph over parental objections. Warner Brothers First National wanted to capitalize on this union and put the pair in the hilariously titled Too Young to Marry, released in 1931. Loretta got top billing over her husband, one of the many indications that his career was on the decline while hers remained on the rise. Frankly, the least of their problems. The biggest one was that Loretta didn't love the guy. She saw her out when Grant left town to go on a personal appearance tour, and Loretta packed her bags, went back to her mother's house, and, you know, ghosted him. Good for her. Around this same time, early autumn 1930, Warner Brothers First National had announced that they were going to move Loretta to the star level. Far from negatively impacting her career, this short-lived marriage, they would officially divorce the next year, may have helped adultify Loretta's image. A little. She was no longer the impossibly immature ingenue. She at least appeared to have some life experience. But at heart, she remained as good a girl as ever. Overall, the messaging, re the marriage, was that it was just a blip, an experiment that meant little and changed less. The ex-wife that went back to girlhood, said one headline in silver screen. High-profile films followed in 1931, like Platinum Blonde, which was renamed in honor of her co-star Jean Harlow, despite Loretta being the star, and Taxi with James Cagney. Blithely going from one film to another, Loretta Young continues to build a reputation for clever, appealing, and natural performances, wrote Picture Play in their May 1931 issue. No matter what the estimate of the picture is, she is always a charming, refreshing heroine whose youth somehow conveys a girlish dignity and poise that sets Loretta apart. Over the next couple of years, her career was going from strength to strength. This was great news for the family, as Loretta was their top earner. And great news for Loretta, who, for all intents and purposes, was living her dream movie star life. She may not have lived on her own in a glamorous mansion, but that suited her well enough. She preferred being with the family, and Gladys doted on her as well as an army of servants would have. 
The movie star life included going out on the town with handsome suitors like George Brent, he bunged things up by marrying Ruth Chatterton, and Howard Hughes, who bunged things up by being too bossy and, you know, a big weirdo. Evidently one try at the old marriage game is enough to last Loretta for some time to come, quipped Modern Screen in 1932. Since her divorce from Grant Withers, she's been going with a steady list of different boyfriends, and before any really serious rumors can develop, Loretta has switched her affections. She was just a gal on the town, a perfectly respectable gal. There was never any hint of anything untoward as far as the fan magazines were concerned. Happy to date casually when she felt like it around her very busy filming schedule. Speaking of the busy filming schedule, 1932 offered up some opportunities to truly prove her mettle as a performer. In that year's Life Begins, predominantly set in a maternity ward, she plays a pregnant woman incarcerated for murder. It was controversial, mostly because many local censor boards found the very topic of pregnancy to be just too scandalous to approve of. But for Loretta, it was a triumph. The Film Daily called her performance impressive. Motion Picture said, Loretta Young has never done better work. The next year, 1933, two important things happened. One, her contract with Warner Brothers First National came to its conclusion, and instead of re-signing, she moved over to 20th Century, a brand new studio led by former United Artists bigwig Joseph Schenck and former Warner Brothers executive Daryl F. Zanuck, which would merge with Fox just two years later. The second thing was that she met Spencer Tracy on the set of Man's Castle. Thirteen years her senior, Spence was an accomplished actor, but not yet a big star. He was officially separated from his wife of ten years, Louise, but as a Catholic, and for the sake of his two children, he resolutely refused to pursue a divorce. He and Loretta began, quite openly, seeing each other. The reaction in the fan magazines, no doubt arranged by 20th Century, who would hardly want anyone casting real aspersions against their newly acquired star, was one of support and sympathy. Spencer was legally separated from his wife, so there's no real reason why he shouldn't date. Loretta always dated with dignity. That is, everything being wholesome and above board and under the watchful eye of her mother. But as they were both Catholics, it had to be acknowledged that there could never be a fairy tale ending. There's something a bit sad about that romance between Loretta Young and Spencer Tracy, wrote Modern Screen. Intimate fans know well that Spence is hit hard by his deep affection for Loretta, and yet they are both deeply devout in a religion which does not countenance divorce and remarriage. It is an unhappy and almost hopeless Hollywood love story. Behind the scenes, that hopelessness didn't stop Loretta from falling in love with Spence. What they did or didn't do together privately is none of our business. But on that note, Loretta later said, It was not an affair. It was two people in love trying not to have an affair. She spent over a year struggling with the emotional and spiritual turmoil of the doomed relationship. 
made all the more complex with Spencer's own alcoholism and emotional issues. He would disappear for days. Eventually, the extent of his drinking, as much as Loretta could understand, became clear and impossible to ignore. On one occasion, Loretta was called in to help when Spencer had been on a two-week binge, with the hope that her influence might get him to stop. She didn't know what to do. This wasn't anything her mother had prepared her for. All it really resulted in was Spence holding on to her, sobbing, and insisting that he wouldn't be in this wretched state if they could just get married. I don't mean to sound unsympathetic to his situation. He clearly was going through it. But it feels so deeply unfair and manipulative, not to mention toxic, for a man in his 30s to put the weight of his alcoholism and depression on his much younger girlfriend. The guilt that she must have felt, even though it wasn't her fault, must have been oppressive. Eventually, she had to officially call time on her relationship with Spencer Tracy. Putting her faith first was a major factor. Since Spencer Tracy and I can never be married, we have agreed not to see one another again, Loretta said in a statement. I have said that I would never marry outside of my church, nor will I. Consequently, Spencer and I might just as well part now as later. There is no sense in prolonging matters. It is so much better to make a clean break before it is too late. I feel very sad about bringing to an end such a beautiful relationship as we have enjoyed, yet it seems this was our destiny from the very start. Spencer went back to his wife and would remain legally married to her for the rest of his life. It was the end of 1934, and Loretta was heartbroken. I believe that the directors have made a big mistake when they chose Loretta Young to star in Born to be Bad, wrote a fan in a letter to the new movie magazine. On the contrary, she was really born to be good, and while she plays the part excellently, it is not because she relishes the part, but that she is an excellent actress. Loretta Young is a future headliner and will gain no dazzling lights on Broadway if she is starred in any future pictures which can be described as indecent, rotten, scandalous, etc., and I think the producers should see that a more careful survey is taken before they pick her for a part like she plays in Born to be Bad. The fan was right, of course, and it was during this period that Loretta's sterling image began to really take shape, with a few missed castings, like in 1934's Born to be Bad. Sterling and radiant, wholesome and open-hearted, Loretta led the charge in the design of her own public image, wishing to be a good role model and representative of her faith. She balked at roles that called for her to play too far against type. I want to do idealistic things on the screen, Loretta was quoted as saying in Movie Mirror, or I won't do any roles at all. I let myself be talked into doing a really unmoral girl lately. There was no excuse for her at all. I think that the screen has a mission to bring beauty, ideals, and happiness to people. I'll give up anything to be part of that. Another role that Loretta was decidedly not interested in taking was Call of the Wild. Not because her character is meant to be a bad girl, but because she wasn't that into the idea of doing an outdoorsy movie, let alone one filmed on location. But regardless, she was assigned to the William Wellman-directed action-adventure film opposite one of the biggest movie stars of the day, 
Clark Gable. Clark, who was just shy of his 34th birthday when filming began in January 1935, was riding high off the success of It Happened One Night, for which he would soon win the Academy Award for Best Actor. He was on the Quigley Top Money-Making Stars poll, had been since 1932, would stay there for the next decade. People found him handsome, charming, charismatic. Clark had been married to Rhea Langham since 1931. She was 17 years his senior, the second of his older, mentor-come-moneybags-style wives. Being married hadn't stood in Clark's way when it came to other women, and he'd had a number of affairs, most notably with Joan Crawford during her marriage to Douglas Fairbanks Jr. He was known as a ladies' man and a flirt. Call of the Wild was filmed on location in Mount Baker National Forest in Washington State. When the 20th century's Call of the Wild company left the studio, they planned to be gone for ten days or two weeks, wrote Hollywood Magazine but they reckoned without the frigid grasp of a northern winter. Held by the icy blasts of blizzard after blizzard, the weeks lengthened into more than a month of privations from cold and threatened starvation. The terrible weather caused filming to stretch out for several weeks, but the isolation and boredom made the casting crew of Call of the Wild all the more collegial with each other. Clark and Loretta were no exception. They got along very well. Loretta had a crush on him, much in the same way she'd had a crush on nearly every leading man she had ever had since she was a teenager. It had actually become part of her process for playing romances. Fall a little in love with your leading man, and it makes the whole thing more believable. Clark would call her his girl on set, and rumors swirled about just how close they appeared. Their flirty friendship served as a distraction from the cold, and from her lingering heartbreak of giving up Spencer Tracy just a couple of months earlier. As far as Loretta was concerned, that was really it, however. She was decidedly not interested in getting into another entanglement with a married man. Call of the Wild was eventually called back to the studio lot. Filming on location had gone out of control, and they would finish the production on sound stages. The whole operation boarded the overnight train back to California. Over 60 years later, in 1998, Loretta was watching TV with her friend and biographer, Edward Funk, when she heard the term date rape for the very first time. Ed tried to explain what it meant. The next day, Loretta spoke to her daughter-in-law, Linda Lewis, and told her, I now know that there is a word for what happened to me with Clark. On that overnight train in 1935, Clark knocked on Loretta's compartment door unexpectedly. I allowed him in, as I would have any member of the crew, thinking he was there for a visit, Loretta explained. He had other intentions, very persistent intentions. He wasn't rough, but I kept saying no and he wouldn't take no for an answer. Let me be as clear as possible in case there's any chance to misinterpret that. Clark Gable raped Loretta Young. Now, it's highly likely that Clark just 
thought he was the cock of the walk, the world's best seducer, the irresistible, no matter how much you do resist, ladies' man. And at the time, what is for sure is that Loretta didn't understand what had just happened to her. This was a colleague, a friend. That's not what a rapist was. A rapist was a, a man lurking in the bushes, not a well-respected, charming movie star. Loretta was taught, through the social mores of her time and through her religion, that it was a woman's job to put a stop to sexual situations going too far. She had flirted with him. She had let him into her train compartment at night, alone. She had failed to somehow force him to listen to her when she said no, repeatedly. Loretta was filled with shame and guilt. Clark probably didn't think too much of it at the time. This was his M.O., after all. I'm going to divert slightly by reading an excerpt from Myrna Loy's memoir, where she describes an early encounter with Clark Gable around 1933, a man she really thought the world of later, who she would go on to consider a great friend and a special person. But still, this happened. I didn't work with Clark Gable on night flight, but Mina Wallace introduced us around that time. The so-called Hollywood elite in these days used to give an annual Mayfair ball. Anyone who was everyone would get all dolled up in the best bib and tucker, go down to the ambassador and dance. Now I'm taking Mr. and Mrs. Gable, Minna said. I thought maybe you'd like to meet Clark. By that time he was hot, the big rage. All the women in Hollywood, including my friend Lou McFarlane, were talking about him. I'd heard he was always on the make at the studio, after everyone, snapping garters left and right. At the dance, though, he acted like a perfect gentleman. Attentive, but not aggressive. Whenever I hear dancing in the dark, I think of him, because we danced to it that night, and he was vibrant and warm, a marvelous dancer. It was divine. Coming home, we dropped Minna off first, leaving the three of us, the Gables and me, in the back seat of the limousine. Clark's second wife, Rhea, who had been charming all evening, was much older than he and somewhat matronly. As we drove towards my mother's house, I could see that Clark was beginning to feel a bit amorous. He started edging towards me, with his wife sitting right there beside him. Of course, he was probably loaded by that time. We all were, to a certain extent. Clark escorted me to the door. As I turned to unlock it, he bent down and gave me a monkey bite. It left a scar on my neck for days. I turned round and I gave him a shove, sending him backwards two or three steps off the porch and into the hedge. As he stumbled back, I remember he laughed a little, which infuriated me all the more. It was just the idea of his wife sitting out in the car. I'd had quite a few bows, but this was different, you see. This was not right. I wanted no part of it. Myrna goes on to explain that when she and Clark were then cast together in Men in White soon after, he snubbed her coldly on the set. He was punishing me, she wrote. We managed to be convincing lovers on camera, which wasn't easy while he virtually ignored me. That Dutchman just wasn't taking no for an answer. After returning to Hollywood, Loretta vouched to put the incident as far out of her mind as she could. But after a few weeks, it became obvious that pretending nothing happened on that train wouldn't be possible. Loretta was pregnant. What happened next 
is one of the most extraordinary cover-ups in Hollywood history. First, to get it out of the way, abortion was never an option for Loretta. While she knew of other young actresses who had had illegal, often studio-arranged terminations, as a Catholic, it was not a choice that Loretta could or would have made. Next, understand that in 1935's Hollywood, having a child out of wedlock would have been disastrous. Loretta's career would be over. Her contract would be terminated on the grounds that she broke the morality clause all players were subject to. Socially, Loretta would have been made an outcast in the only community she had ever known. She would have faced condemnation from the church. It's almost a certainty that her films would be boycotted, and she likely never would have worked again. It wouldn't have mattered if Loretta had understood that what Clark did in not taking no for an answer was rape. Few others at the time would have agreed, and she would have been labeled as an adulterous slut. Her sisters, also actors, may have been painted with the same brush, and her mother Gladys, then working as an interior designer, would have been tainted with scandal. It was Gladys who came up with the plan. According to Loretta's sisters, their mother had some experience in this department, as when they were teenagers, if they ever had a friend in trouble, they could send her to Gladys for help. Hiding the pregnancies of Catholic girls was a useful skill set. What to wear, how to act. But Loretta was a highly visible movie star. It wouldn't be enough for her to just wear larger clothes or carry around a laundry basket like she was in a 90s sitcom. They told Clark Gable, He does not appear to have given a shit. Of course, I have no idea what was going through his head, but he reportedly made no steps to be involved or even really keep abreast of the situation. There are conflicting reports of phone calls back and forth, but that's it. Loretta kept working, filming Shanghai with Charles Boyer and Cecil B. DeMille's The Crusades. The costume department never let on if they did notice any changes to Loretta's body, but towards the end of that shoot, it became obvious to her that she would have to make a swift retreat from the screen. 20th Century wanted her to film Ramona that summer, but she told them she was suffering from extreme exhaustion and needed a vacation. They relented, agreeing to postpone production until later. A testament to her importance to the studio, really. She and Gladys departed for a European vacation in June, but in a very savvy move, Loretta's social calendar was pretty well documented during her travels, lest anyone suspect that the trip was in fact cover-up. Loretta and her mother returned to the States after the summer season, further muddying the waters for anyone doing the mental math on a secret pregnancy. Returning home, the young family joined forces to keep Loretta protected. She had gotten ill while on vacation, they reported, and must have total rest. She became quite nocturnal, with her sisters recounting that they would drive her at night to empty streets just so she could get out and walk. There were rumors. All the family's hard work hadn't completely eradicated that. Knowing feelings from close friends, too. But as far as the studio was concerned, officially, anyway, there was nothing fishy going on, and with the proper care, Loretta would be back on screen soon. This was the messaging sent by the fan magazines. Like Photoplay, 
taking rumors head on, who said, Loretta Young is not suffering from an incurable illness that will keep her from the screen for a year or more. Her beauty has not been marred in a serious secret accident. She is not the secret bride of a secret marriage in retirement to have a secret child. Nor is she penniless, fundless, existing on the financial help of influential friends in a pathetic condition. I want to say all these things as fast as I can, as fast as they will click off my typewriter in the hope of quickly ending the series of preposterous, unkind, and just plain silly rumors that have struck at this girl ever since her doctor ordered her removed from the cast of Ramona and notified her studio that Loretta would not be able to report for work for an indefinite time. Total exhaustion had simply knocked her flat, that was the message, caused by the seven back-to-back -back films she did in the lead-up to her illness. To sell the story even harder, Loretta took an interview with Dorothy Manners from her bed. She was covered in blankets and pillows with an IV taped to her arm. It dripped into a bucket, but Dorothy didn't see that. The ruse worked well enough. Gladys rented a safe house, for lack of a better word, and that's where Loretta gave birth in November 1935. Judith, Judy, was named after St. Jude, the patron saint for impossible situations. For several weeks, Judy was predominantly cared for by hired nurses and moved to a second rented house to continue to evade attention. Loretta said that she visited every day. Clark Gable visited once. Apparently he'd been sent a telegram directly after the birth, likely from Loretta's brother-in-law, so he knew he had a daughter. Loretta emerged from isolation in December, making sure to see and be seen. Healthy, beautiful, and not looking obviously postpartum. Running into Clark at a party, she covertly invited him to come and see Judy. He agreed. Loretta later told her sisters that he wasn't really interested in seeing the baby. Instead, he took the opportunity to try and knock Loretta down on the bed. Loretta had set up a secret bank account for Judy, giving Clark the opportunity to provide for her if he wanted to. Save for $400 in cash he handed Loretta that one night that he tried his chances with her again, he would contribute nothing more. Loretta returned to work in January 1936 as if nothing had happened. She made four films that year. Beautiful, unaffected, and above all, poised. That's what Loretta Young is, said Motion Picture Magazine in their June 1936 issue. Ill for a long time, she has returned to films. Some wondered if Loretta had deserted pictures for good, but she hadn't. Lovelier than ever, you'll see her in Unguarded Hour with French Tone. Loretta made her public return with a vengeance, gracing the cover of multiple fan magazines that year, and being featured in several glowing profiles. The storm, it seems, had been successfully weathered. Then one of the nurses taking care of the baby threatened to blackmail Loretta, so Gladys arranged for Judy to live in a San Francisco orphanage run by nuns for a few months. Later on, Gladys quietly had Judy discharged back into her care. Again, it was all very smoke and mirrors. Modern Madonna rang the headline in Screenland's September 1937 issue. Loretta Young, Hollywood's youngest adopted mother, 
invites Screenland to be the first to meet Judy and Jane, new bosses of Loretta's lovely home. The final piece of the puzzle was to get Judy successfully and officially back into her mother's care. Thus, Loretta adopted Judy and a fictional three-year-old named Jane, who conveniently went back to her biological family. As far as Loretta's persona was concerned, the altruistic act of adopting a child further cemented her good girl public image. Around Hollywood, rumors would continue to be whispered from time to time, especially as Judy grew to look like a perfect mix of her biological parents. Loretta refused to have Judy photographed without a bonnet to cover her distinct Clark Gable ears. Eventually, they were surgically pinned back. But outwardly, officially, the scandal was avoided and the truth hidden. Loretta's career continued to soar. She had another extremely successful on-screen pairing, this time with Tyrone Power making five films together. They even had their foot and handprints placed together at Sid Grauman's theater. And yes, Loretta fell right in love with him, but who wouldn't? Nobody was as romance-struck as I, Loretta was quoted. I think I was in and out of love so much because it was more pleasant for me to be in love or to think I was. If I'd get the least bit of an extra look from a man, I'd think, oh good, he likes me. It didn't pan out with Ty Power as he married Annabella in 1939, which put a firm stop to things as far as Loretta was concerned. She also dated James Stewart around this time, and though she recounted in her later years that she would have happily been more serious with either of them, at the time she seemed to keep most of her dates at arm's length. As she grew older, perhaps because of all the pain and stress she had gone through, her head started winning out over her heart more and more. When she eventually married radio executive Tom Lewis in 1940, I think it's fair to say that Loretta, wary of making any kind of mistake, was trying to make the practical choice. He was older, Catholic, not a handsome Hollywood type, big on traditional gender roles despite his wife out-earning him by a massive amount. I know, a jerk. They were married until the 1960s. The 1940s brought even greater professional success for Loretta, even though she slowed her output with her marriage and the birth of her two sons, Peter and Christopher, with films like The Stranger, 1946, with Orson Welles, holiday favorite The Bishop's Wife, 1947, with Cary Grant and David Niven, and her Academy Award-winning role in The Farmer's Daughter, 1947. There were an awful lot of women out there like me, willing to play by the rules, didn't sleep around, and weren't very aggressive, Loretta said about her on-screen appeal. A Loretta Young movie had a happy ending, a nice husband or lover, no abuse of any kind. That's what the heroes and heroines were in those days. Her staunch commitment to only appearing in Loretta Young movies caused no small amount of consternation at the studios, and her increasing commitment to behaving like Loretta Young of Loretta Young movies caused no small amount of consternation among some of her co-stars. Robert Mitchum, for example, nicknamed her Mother Superior on the set of Rachel and the Stranger after she chided him and William Holden for their drinking and swearing. And Hollywood legends about a swear box she insisted on having on set may have originated on that film, too. 
Plenty of sassy people have been credited with putting large amounts of cash into the swear jar to cover them for the length of a production. If this uptight reputation was justified, and plenty of close friends and loved ones didn't feel that it was, but if it was justified, frankly it makes perfect sense to me. Loretta had bore the very real consequences of her encounter with Clark Gable, not just with the literal birth of a child, but also the internalized shame of having somehow led him on during the location shoot of Call of the Wild, and of letting things go too far on the train back to California. None of it was actually her fault, but she didn't understand that at the time. And thus the pendulum may have swung in the other direction, become above reproach, become the perfect Catholic woman, lead by example, and never compromise your morals, even if it does come across as preachy. This desire to lead by example, to tell the sort of morally beneficial and inspiring stories that she wanted to tell, also directly influenced the next part of Loretta's career, that and her rarely wavering ambition. In the 1950s, it became clear that television was the medium of the future. Many in the movie-making business were terrified, but Loretta saw TV's potential. Originally titled Letter to Loretta, the Loretta Young Show, a dramatic anthology series, ran for 165 episodes from 1953 to 1961. It won the Golden Globe for Best TV Show in 1953, and Loretta personally won the Primetime Emmy for Best Actress three times, with several other nominations. The program kept Loretta in the public eye with grace and dignity, and usually a quote from the Bible, long after many of her peers had seen their careers fade from view. All her life, Loretta's daughter Judy had been told that she was adopted. She was first told of her parentage at 22 when her fiancé revealed the open secret that everyone in Hollywood already seemed to know. When Judy confronted her mother about it for the first time as an adult, she said that Loretta was so shaken that she vomited. Loretta was not a perfect mother, no one is. Like all working stars, she spent a lot of time away from home. And no one knew the potential damage and attachment issues that being separated from a primary caregiver could cause in Judy's first years, let alone the repercussions of having such a vital part of your life turn out to be a big lie. In 1994, Judy released a book, Uncommon Knowledge, about her interpretation of events. I've read it. I don't want to downplay her feelings the psychological impact of her birth and childhood. It's clear that she had a very complex relationship with Loretta. Clark Gable died in 1960. What's also clear to me is that not getting to have a relationship with her biological father deeply impacted Judy. And the resulting lens with which she saw the situation strikes me as just profoundly sad. It's not her fault. Once Loretta finally admitted some of the truth to Judy, she cushioned the story, but inadvertently villainized herself. Everyone wants to believe that they exist because of love, 
after all. But Judy's version paints a picture of a doomed romance, a loving father cruelly kept from his beloved baby by a cold and unfeeling Loretta. It's a bitter, painful picture, and it's one that treats fantasy as fact. That said, I think we have the opportunity here in 2024 to be graceful towards all parties in this story. They were in such an impossible situation. As with anyone, there are multiple sides to Loretta Young, and likely because of her religious beliefs, she is a somewhat polarizing figure. While her loved ones remember her generosity, her charity, her warmth, her grace, and her genuine sense of humor, others sigh snobby superiority, uptightness, sanctimony, and even phoniness. When Judy's book came out in the 1990s, it was one of a string of exposés from the perspective of Hollywood children, almost all of which took aim at the carefully curated legacies of their parents. For many, the secret love child angle was the perfect gotcha against Loretta, exposing what was seen as hypocrisy. Not so saintly now, huh? As so often happens, the sneer of judgment comes against the individual, the woman, rather than the institutions that she lived within. Her religion made it clear to have sex out of wedlock was a sin, to have a bastard child was to be permanently marked. Her studio contract was also ironclad. To break its morality clause would spell the end of her livelihood and of the dreams she had since she was a little girl. It took until 1998 when Loretta understood the concept of date rape for the very first time for some of her internal guilt to be lifted. She'd always known that she didn't want what happened on the train the night of Judy's conception, but everything around her told her that it had been her fault and her cross to bear. Loretta still insisted that her daughter-in-law Linda and her friend Edward Funk not share what she told them until after Judy's death. She'd carried the truth for that long. It would only hurt her daughter to learn it. Loretta Young died in 2000, age 87. Judy passed away 11 years later at 76. With a career spanning from the silent era into the 1980s, though she took the 1970s off, it is impossible to say everything worth saying about Loretta Young. But I gave it a damn good try. It's another dollar for the jar. Thank you for listening to Close Up Loretta Young. If you've been enjoying the Old Movie Lady podcast, please leave a review or a rating. Subscribe and spread the word. I've been your host, Marg, the old movie lady, an unholy mess of a girl.